Hello everyone, Paul Akers, and welcome back to the American Innovator. You know, I get to do some amazing things, and this time I'm going to Bangalore, India, to visit TBS Motors. And while I was there with Norman Bodak, who was one of my mentors and my father, as I refer to him, he introduced me to Venu Shrevanasan. And Venu is a fantastic man, so interesting. And I had the rare opportunity of spending almost one day with him. And we sat down in his corporate office in Bangalore, and Venu started to talk. And I pulled out my iPhone and I said, do you mind if I record this? And he said, no, it's okay. The wisdom that came from this man was astounding. And now you're going to be able to learn from his insight. It is profound. Hi everyone, Paul Akers. Well, you heard the introduction. We're going to India, Bangalore, to TBS Motors, one of the largest motorcycle manufacturers in the country. An absolutely amazing place. One of the highest levels of implementation of lean that I've ever seen in my life anywhere. The place is absolutely flawless, spotless. The engineers, the people are so engaged. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And while I was there with Norman Bodak for about a week, we were invited to spend approximately a day with Venu, who is the president of this amazing organization that started back in uh, the early 1900s. So what's going to happen right now is you're going to get a chance to have a sit-down talk with Venu for about an hour and 15 minutes. Now, you don't normally get access to people like this. These people are amazing. They are at a very high level. They're very busy and you don't really get to spend a lot of time with them. And I was fortunate enough to spend a whole day. And in the process, I pulled out my camera and they knew, as I said in the introduction, said, okay, you can go ahead and record this. So this is my opinion, like going and sitting at the feet of one of the best professors at Harvard or Yale and having an opportunity to really look inside their mind on what life is all about, what it takes to run a world-class billion dollar organization the high level thinking that is involved and really being with a man who is so well read and so well studied and cultured and experienced and worldly in every respect, you just don't get access to these kinds of people very often. So I hope you enjoy what you're about ready to watch. This is something that we'll watch in our morning meeting and expose all of our people to because it's a rare opportunity. So enjoy this. I think it's once in a lifetime you'll experience someone of this caliber. So, Vanna, would you just tell me the story about your grandfather and how customer service is just deeply ingrained in TVS? There are two or three stories I could talk about. The first one was about the bus service, which he started. He was the first one to run, run a scheduled bus service, which went to a timetable. Till then, buses were like big taxis, parked in the marketplace, and then they filled up, they ran. He said, no, this is a waste of time for people. So he said, my buses will run to a timetable. And he said, they will always be on time. And when he's looked at why they were not on time, one of the biggest problems is breakdowns. So he implemented two things. The first biggest predator on breakdown was tire flat going due to horseshoe nails. Because the, the, the horses because were on the, the road. Were not horses, but they were on bulls or really steers. And the nails were falling out of the and horseshoes. the nails were falling out of the uh, hooves of the bullocks. What we, we call the bullocks, we call them steers. Yeah. And they would uh, go and puncture the tire. So he ran an electromagnet mounted truck. In 1934? In 1930s. Oh, this is just too much. And then, uh, next thing he did, his son was a brilliant guy who really ran the bus service. 
he implemented U.S. Air Force preventive maintenance schedule for all his buses. TQM, so yeah. many hours and it got changed. And every time I worked uh, for a month on the night shift of the bus garage of the transport company, every night when the trucks or buses came back, the driver would put down what are the faults and they were fixed overnight. The next morning it was like an airplane service exactly that if you put down because it was from the US now you course. said you said something about them not being four four hundred they were never late for four hundred four hundred buses and how many stops and no no, no. late coming and the legend in uh, South India was you set your watch by the TBS bus that's the easiest and you said if anything happened they had food on board because you're well, always the thinking early of the days customer. before he fixed all this right uh, he had food on board because yeah. he had not yet figured out these things. The source he, management. So at that time he was dealing with the high customer service, but then he started drilling down to the source with electromagnetic yes. pickups on the nails. Preventive maintenance. And, the second thing that it did was when he started the garage for selling GM cars, Chevrolet, Cadillac. He, uh, they had a return trade postcard, so you had two postcards, one was blank and mm -hmm. one had uh, a prepaid postcard. Right. And 30th day, the customer got a postcard saying, would you please put down your top three issues that you faced in the last 30 days? So car. they could improve. They could improve. And if you didn't bring your car in for service, somebody called a service salesman, he was not a service manager, a right. service salesman. To use the concept of sales attached to service is quite unique. Yes. The service salesman brought in a loaner, dropped the car at your home, picked up your car for service, had it serviced, dropped it back, and it went back. Completely painless. And you were saying that you had the number one GM service operation in the world. In the world. And in one, India. So in 1960s, when we started making auto components, because India stopped imports, it's GM who introduced TVS to most of their suppliers and said, this has the greatest guy. If you want to go to India, go with them. And learn what real customer service is know, all about. And do joint ventures. Right. That's how we started the electrical brakes, air brakes, uh, wheels. <coughs> the four major businesses that my dad started because he was an industrial engineer. Hard, self-trained, but an industrial engineer. How about that? And... Uh, other thing is, I can go on and on, but uh, I'll give you a simple. We had a production control room like this mm -hmm. for the garage. Every time the job card, one job was over, the mechanic would call the control room and say, job one over, and they'd move a peg. Mm -hmm. They could tell any customer who called into the garage exactly when his car would be ready. Through visual management. Through visual management. They had visual management when I was a kid in 1968. And I was working at summers. Every summer I worked as a garage mechanic. So your dad sounds like he was just as predisposed to this as your grandfather. Every was. one of them was. There are five sons, and every one contributed something unique to the business. Wow. And uh, then they had the first snap-on nut runners and tools. The whole garage ran on snap-on. Quality. And uh, when they had these impact wrenches. They were very expensive. Yeah. They had a simple system. They were all impact wrenches were on a part in bays. 
So if I needed the impact wrench to pull off the tire, the wheels and whatever I wanted to pull off, I put my employee token and took it. So you knew exactly who had the tool. Who had it. So, so somebody the wanted searching. it, he put his token on, took off the other token, went to the other guy's bay and said, here's your token, I'm taking the wrench. And my dad implemented this. Every vehicle when it came, you see in an automobile assembly today, <laughs> that they put covers on the fender mm -hmm. when they're assembling right. the vehicle, so, so there's no surprise. He put blankets. Every car, the first thing they do is put blankets on the fenders. There's no thumbprints on it. And uh, they did an inventory of everything the customer had put in, what was called in those days, accessories or extra fitment, mm -hmm. radios or whatever. And Typically, a car would have spare fan belts and hoses at the back because those gave way. They had very poor quality. So take an inventory and ask the customer to sign it. This is what your car came with into the garage. Wow. And when they returned it, the customer checked it and said he's received everything. Fantastic. Third thing that they did was even great. More great process is what you're talking about. Yeah. Third Refined thing that they did was even more interesting. Yeah. He did. Uh, this is your father now. Yeah, okay. all the spare parts that were changed in the vehicle. An average garage would keep it and sell it as scrap for a little more income. He said no, then somebody would be tempted to use that as a new part right. and cheat the customer. So they always gave back to the customer, here are the parts that have been changed, you please uh -huh. dispose of it. We don't want it in our garage. Incredible. So there are no scrap parts lying inside our garage. So the natural 3Sing process. If you go to the garage and you had a new starter put in, it was new. Right. It no was not chance. somebody's old right. starter fiddled around and put back on your car. Just very common. This is how we instill confidence in the customer. T stood for trust. Right. TVS stood for trust, value, service. I didn't know that. So first trust in employees and trust in customers. Because if employees don't have trust, then your customers are not going to get trust. The value. And, your, and your father and grandfather did that because they were very focused It's not just my father, my father, my eldest uncle, the second uncle, the third right. uncle, the fourth uncle. And they did that because they took very good care of their employees. I heard the story that if you focus on taking care of your employees, your employees can focus on taking care of the company. Sure, because the employee who is happy and proud of his company. Uh, example of that is if a tedious uh, bus or a truck went uh, on the road and saw a TVS branded or a brand that TVS sold a Cadillac or a Chevrolet and later a Fiat broken down the bus would stop mm -hmm. take them on board drop them at the next stop so they could then go and get help or the truck driver would put them in the cabin and take him to the next uh, uh, truck what they call right. the booking office for right. But parcels at that time, we didn't have couriers, they're called parcel service. Right. And then the booking agent would help him get help to get him on. So the whole organization, even different parts of it, worked that customer of TVS was a customer of TVS. It didn't matter which part of TVS you're dealing with. Right. You so they went, so in other words, you didn't you didn't experience a lot of bureaucracy. Oh well that's no, there's no bureaucracy. Customer came first. If you called after five... And everybody was empowered to make sure exactly. the customer... Exactly. If you called after five, the security guy would pick up. Oh, you got a problem. I'm sorry. The company is closed. 
please give me your name and this serviceman will call you at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. He'll call you back and answer mm-hmm. your call. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the company will take a call for a customer. During World War, every gallon of gasoline and every part was sold at list price. My grandfather said, these customers have to come back to me when the war is over. I'm not going to scalp them. And the whole auto parts industry tried to do an operation to bring him down because he was showing them up. So in other words, during the war, people were kind of taking advantage of the severe need. And charging because you had very little import. We were a British colony and we didn't have parts. And so most dealers would sell the part for 100% markup or or whatever they could get for, for it. But he always sold until right through 70s, 80s, when India was a closed economy, working on shortages. TBS shows sold parts only at marked price. They never overcharged. But and, be, and because that's long-term thinking, because yeah. your grandfather and father and uncle were thinking after the war yes. and not for the immediate profit. Yeah. How do we build a sustainable organization? And uh, this is something that permeated the whole organization, that you work to value. Value stands for two things. One is value by itself, which means that my grandfather said, if somebody was charged for a service or a part, and it costs a dollar, it should have cost him only 75 cents. Then he will go back saying, I've got value from TV. Because really, to me, the value is a dollar, but I pay only 35 cents for it. Right. So they constantly work on saying the customer perceived value should be higher by 33%. We even use it today for, we go and ask a guy, how much will you pay for this? And if the customer says, oh, this would, accessory would be worth a dollar to me, we would not put it on unless we can give it to him for seven pesos. It always works. That's what causes attractive quality of delight. Attractive quality, which is the TQM word for, TQM has two qualities. One is must be quality. If your car breaks down, if your engine doesn't run right, if blah, 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 then you wouldn't buy it. Right. But that's just the basic minimum. Attractive quality comes from, wow, I didn't expect that in a car. Attractive quality. Attractive quality. VR. For the first one to put under I, I'm the I'm sorry, filter. I've never heard that before. That no, is fantastic. We are attractive on our quality. next study mission. Dr. Kondo is going to speak to our group. Attractive quality. That's where it came from. Dr. Kondo. I've never heard that. That's And fantastic. attractive quality is when you open the uh, trunk, you get a light on, don't you? Yeah. Nobody had it on the scooter. When you open the uh, helmet part. Right. Uh, storage area where you might store other things at the time. At night, there's no light. So we put the first light. Everybody said, oh, TVS is a light there. Now, other people do it better than us maybe, but we constantly try to say, what would that attractive feature be? Why would they buy TVS? Why TVS? It must have the basics that everybody provides, which is power, pickup, fuel efficiency, a horn, comfort, a horn, yeah. whatever. Right. But beyond that, have you seen the Toyota ads of 1976, 77 in America? I'm not sure. Okay. They had an ad campaign across the range from Toyota mm-hmm. Love pickup to Corollas. Mm-hmm. There was a lovely 
the Plaza Hotel in New York, mm -hmm. in the ballroom, and people are having a conversation or cocktails. And somebody said, I wish I had a car that would actually take my golf bag and it would take my baseball kit for my kids and we could use it, the whole family could use it. And somebody would say, I wish it had blah, blah, a third person. And suddenly in the middle of the ballroom appears a Toyota and say, you asked for it, you got it, Toyota. Oh yes, I remember that. Absolutely, I remember it. You asked for Second is values. Values is a different meaning. What do you live by? TVS is a band of brothers, first the founding founders' sons, TVS and son. They were mm -hmm. a band of brothers. Mm -hmm. Then that band of brothers feeling, the spirit, the esprit de corps, spread right through the organization. I remember once Ashok was a little surprised or you know, very uh, struck by this. A very old valet or a house servant maid, you know, from my grandfather's time, mm -hmm. he couldn't walk. So he came to my grandfather's house in the village to see me uh, mm -hmm. and he could climb the two steps into the house. So mm -hmm. I took two chairs and put them on the street and sat with him. He said, who would do that? But that's how we are trained. It's human values. Wow. The guy has come to see me, he's 85 years old, and he's come to see his patron's grandson who has come to the village and he wanted to come and see him. So... What a beautiful story. So you went down, put your two plastic chairs on the street. Fortunately, you know, we have plastic molded chairs which can be moved quickly. You always took care of people. For example, during the floods in Chennai last week, we had a control room. Every employee knew the numbers they could call. And we had the whole security system of the company was organized to find a way to get a boat to the guy or get a helicopter to the guy. Mm -hmm. They were put in service apartments, hotels, or in another employee's home during the four or five days that everybody was flooded out. We put out about uh, two tons of food a day from mm -hmm. our company cafeteria in packets of cooked rice. And when you cook rice in a particular way with the Indian sour fruit called tamarind, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't go bad. That will not go bad for four days. So we make only that, it's not very nutritional or healthy mm -hmm. from a lean yeah. health point of view, but it'll keep you, make you survive for the next four sure. days. Absolutely. So we put out 6,000 food packets a day. Currently? Currently. Or two tons? Two tons a day. 6,000 into about 300 grand. But your cafeterias are fantastic. And I love the food so incidentally. So we put out a simple mixed rice, right. which gives you just at least the energy to survive. Right. It may not give you the vitamins, it may not give you the... But vitamins. you had a lot more than that, you had great vegetables and you had... No, all but we, if you put that, it'll spoil. Right. Vegetables spoil. Right, you're saying in, so the, when in you packets... So tamarind into a very thick gravy and mixed right. rice with it, it's uh, with the salt and everything. Natural like preservative. It's a natural preservative, so it will last. Mm, I understand. So we only give that rice and nothing else because that will last for three days. Mm. And we give it to the National Disaster Recovery Force working in Chennai, we give it to the police, we give it to the city uh, office, and they then find out where the people are, they move it, but we produce it and hand it over to them where they want it. We organize the trucks for it. 
we've done it for the last 50, 40, 50 years when my father was there. But whenever we know rains will come now and we know people in low-lying areas will get flooded out. And we always are geared up with ex lots of plastic bags wow. and uh, extra rice and spices to cook that rice and send it out to them. Yeah, I, what I love about TVS and the vision of your grandfather and your father is it is so human-oriented. That's and the it, values. That's the value. Other values are exactness. Right. TVS said they do something, they did it. If they said they'll come on time, they came on time. Which produces trust. Which produces trust. Which is the first letter exactly. in the name. Consistency trust, produces trust. And trust, you know, even the underworld mm -hmm. has trust. Right. They know they'll kill you, right? Right. Exactly. That's consistent. Yeah, absolutely. If you violated the code of the underworld, yeah, you're, you're, if you're over with it. That's not the very nice way to say, but it's consistent. Absolutely. But it is consistency that produces trust. trust. And most you people think this that trust is something that comes out of the air. You, says, yeah. But if a leopard is seven out of ten times nice to you, and three out of ten times kills you, then it's not trustworthy. Yeah, right, right. I like you saying last night, the wolf comes to eat the sheep. <laughs> That was the best one. Yeah, so consistency is very important trust. And to be, trust also comes from sacrifice. Mm. The leader must sacrifice. Only then will people trust you. This guy will die for me. Trust, affection, loyalty are given. They're not taken. Right. So you give it, seven out of 10 times you get it back. Right. And those three then you don't keep with you. So 99% of the company you should be able to trust. Mm -hmm. But you, the company, the owners, the management must constantly give trust. They know that if you violate it, there will be consequence. They know that if you stick by it, there will be reward, recognition. The trust is something, so values, trust is the first value. The, the values are second, third is service. Customer, customer, customer. Everybody should be driven only by one customer. The external customer. external customer. He said, you must somehow find a way of linking what you do to saying, I provide the light to the external customer. Right. He said, this internal customer definition, which came up in the 70s, quite popular. Service departments don't know the external customer, so they focus on, he said, no. If you cannot tell me in policy deployment how the security guard improves profitability, quality, cost, delivery, mm -hmm. then what he's doing is not relevant. Right. Same way, if anybody working on the company must say, what's my customer getting? Oh, I'm doing this. I'm going to have an impact on my customer. So this is how TBS built between 1911 to 1960. 1960, India closed doors to competition. Mm -hmm. We went into a controlled economy, followed the socialist way of centralized command control economy. Right. Everything was run based on shortages and quotas. Quality went down. All our salesmen who retired. So prior to that, it was more of a free market system. It was completely free market, not more. India was completely free market to 1950. You could buy anything you wanted in India, from Rolls Royces to saddle row suits to whatever you wanted. Mm. But suddenly we closed the market and when the generation of people who grew up under that earlier period of 
15 years quality and service. Suddenly, sir, you came and asked for a car. He said, waiting time is 18 months. Make your deposit, go back and come. Now, what's the salesman's role? Right. Uh, quality, anything you made was good enough because there's a shortage. And if you don't want to buy it, okay, don't buy it. There are no other options. So no other options. Rock in a hard place. Boy, that must have been a dramatic change to see so that happen. It deteriorated. The country deteriorated rapidly. The third thing that happened. Uh, when did it was open? When did it open back up? 1992. Wow. Then, That's a long time. Long time. Then the third thing that happened was cost. You don't worry about cost. We had a fixed market. You became lazy, you became fat. Indian companies were grossly inefficient. Right. So you just said, this is my cost. This is the profit I would like. Therefore, this is my price. You don't like it, don't buy it. So India became a completely cost plus economy. There's no incentive to reduce waste. There's no incentive to, to improve value quality. Engineer. There's do value engineering. There's no interest in quality. Or service, service to the customer. Or even there's no customer. You're just looking at an order book, which is 18 months away delivery. 1992, India opened. Fortunately, we started practicing TQM. Uh, very early on. Very early. We were the first adopters or adapters to TQM in uh, 1989, before India opened up. And said right. that we must be ready for India when it opens up. So by 98, we got the Deming Prize, the first Deming Prize in India. There was a few outside Japan already. Philips, Taiwan had got it, Florida Light and Power. So it took six years. It six took years? nine years, actually. Okay, so 98, 90, it opened up in 92. You had the Deming Prize in 98. Right time. The market right. was opening up. We already were ahead right. of the curve. And had you, were you at Purdue at that time? When you I was at Purdue in 75 to 77. And okay. my dad made me go to Purdue because he said, look, we are a company which is manufacturing. Without industrial engineering, you cannot do manufacturing. And did you get your PhD in Purdue? No, master's. Right. And he insisted I take half my courses in uh, industrial engineering. So you were, pre, you were exposed to the Toyota production system this way no, of thinking? No, I was not. But uh, when I was an apprentice in England in 75 early, I produced the first single touch setup for a starter assembly, armature assembly. Mm -hmm. They had different, uh, in the press, you had a different tool. You should come and press it down. Mm -hmm. So I just made, designed one which you could use for the three sizes they were making. Right. And uh, I didn't know it was actually single touch. I didn't know it was <laughs> Shingo. I didn't know right. Ono. Oh, I didn't know I anybody. And, and I loved industrial engineering. When I came back, uh, I didn't see any quality of what TVS stood for in England when I was studying. I went to American factories. I didn't see anything in Detroit that resembled anything like employee, trust, working together, right. commitment, everything in its place. And if you read Wheels by Arthur Haley. No, I haven't read that. You should read it. It's a great How one. bad America was. Please read Wheels. Wheels, okay. It talks about, Is it about how the bad industry? Detroit was. Yeah. That's why it's called Wheels. Yeah, yeah. And how gangs ran the factory. Truckloads of air conditioners be stolen from the factory and everybody was in it. And if you ask questions, you got killed because Underworld was operating it. 
and top management didn't want to know anything about it because they were had a cartel of the big three. Then I went to Germany, much better, but it's not easy. Right. And very bureaucratic. Yeah, it's much better than India. And then I went to Japan. We were looking for a joint venture for motorcycles. I visited Honda, Suzuki, Denzel, Eisenseki. Suddenly he said, my grandfather, this would be his heaven. This is exactly what he believes in. Yeah, this is what my father would be in heaven. And this was in the 70s? It was 1982. 1982. <laughs> and so when did you meet Norman? You've given so much time. I have all the time for you. Oh, okay. And nothing else can you do. Yeah. Okay. So well. when did you meet when did you meet Norman? In ninety-two you went to Japan. Thirty years ago? That was early. I, I can't and he started Productivity Press. And a friend of mine was in publishing and book selling and he said, What should I do? I said, This is the coming wave. We didn't know the word lean then. Lean means emaciated, undernourished guy is lean. But <laughs> 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 what we I knew was quality. Right. And I said TQM is the way. Start publishing. So he tied up with Norman and he brought him to my life. What I know is that it was a selfless dedication for the good of humanity to take these marvelous practices and spread them. And spread them. But where did these practices come from? Have you ever asked that question? Need. Hawthorne experiments. Do you know the Hawthorne experiments? No, I don't know. Hawthorne plant in the 40s? No. That's where TQM came from. No, I don't know about that. But what happened? Juran Handbook of Industrial Engineering I used for my... My dad was an industrialist, so he, he just read Juran Handbook of Industrial Engineering for fun. And okay. my dad was like that. He would right. read everything from uh, Western to Romance to how the brain functions to, to industrial, engineering, industrial engineering, to science. He read anything that came his way. He, at the age of 16, he'd read every book in the local library in his town. <laughs> he was omnivorous. He read six hours a day. That was his only hobby. He smoked and read books. My dad did the same thing. He read a book a day. It sounds like your dad read more than a book a day. <laughs> but he did speed reading. Right. He knew how to skip things that were not relevant. Right. So when we went, uh, when I read the Juran handbook, it had U flow, single piece flow in 70s. It had statistical process control. It had man machine balance. It had everything. We went to America. One of the guy in the shop were telling you, a fresher to Purdue industrial school said, hey, this is all wrong. We need to do it. Hey, forget everything you learned at college. Come to the real world, kid. Mm. Don't teach your grandmother to suck eggs. We're still wet behind the earth. Let me teach you how it's really done. Wow. So people threw whatever they learned in industrial engineering, mm. and they threw it. What did Japan do? After World War, they were so devastated. They sent team after team after team to study Detroit. And they found out what was good about it. They also found out what was wrong about it. Re-engineered everything based on who? Juran. And no kidding. So where did it come? TQM is not Japanese. TQM is Japanese. The principles are not Japanese. The principles are universal. Universal truths of life. Yes. As you so said, what the Japanese did, they packaged it in a way, they did two or three things which made it very unique. And 
extraordinarily powerful. Mm -hmm. So you had sulfur, you had saltpeter, and you had charcoal, but you didn't know how to mix it to make gunpowder. But you had all of them lying around your house. And you said, oh, I want some explosive. Where do I get it? Where do I get it? But they were lying around. The same way you had so many good practices, mm -hmm. theories, knowledge, and but none of them had brought none together, them had as, a, together as, a as a universal theory. Yes. So what did they do? They actually uh, did a few interesting things. This is my own hypothesis. Mm -hmm. may not be. They did a few things. First, they organized it, took the simplest part of it, and created the seven QC tools. All the seven QC tools. So they simplified it. Second thing, what did they do? They did something that America is not an American philosophy or psyche. America is built up on John Wayne. The great individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. Japan was built up on society working together. Yeah. So they made it inclusive. Everybody had a role in using these seven tools. Everybody was involved in improvement. Formed teams to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Because life is not actually discrete compartments. It's actually one pipeline. So I get customer feedback, start designing the product, then get my suppliers to do the development that get my production system to do it, sell it, service it, get feedback, and it goes to a closed loop feedback for the next product. So you cannot say that marketing is your role. If I give you bad products, I couldn't care. Where's your market share? I tell the production guy, I couldn't, uh, you know, where's your production? The purchase and supply, that's not my problem. You didn't produce. Tell the purchase guy, if you didn't produce, you're fired. You tell the quality guy, if quality doesn't come, you're fired. So everybody's individual. Nobody has an incentive to work together. Right. The bonuses are only individual. But in reality, life is interdependent. And there are multiple vectors. And you've got to manage all the vectors if you want to get the output. So to do that, you have to align everybody, like magnetic field, towards one goal. And to do that, what did they do? They first incentives for collective. Plus a special incentive for personal achievement. But if purchase didn't produce, the parts to the factory, factory can produce. So if a supplier had a problem, the whole company rushes to the supplier, the quality right. department, production engineering, saying, oh, I'm not going to get production out. So the first thing that we did is that all managing points, as we call them, or key result areas, were the same for all the people in the chain. Production engineering before would say, I have to create capacity. So what did you do with the capacity? Somebody said, I have to have suppliers. Supplier parts came, your factory didn't work. Factory said, I set up the factory, um, has a line ready, supplier is not producing, it is his problem. So this finger pointing, there's a lovely thing that Sai Baba uses. When you point a finger at you, three fingers are pointing at me. Mm -hmm. So look at those three fingers you're pointing at you and not the one finger that's pointing at you. You're the problem. You're the problem. Three is your problem. What Particularly if you're pointing, <laughs> right? So, it, and shared managing points was uniquely Professor Then Professor Kurahara came with policy deployment. The problem with the management of the objectives was open-ended. It never connected back and it never it wasn't close. There's no interconnecting grid to make sure everybody was on the same page. Where the Japanese deliberately understand the interconnectivity of everyone. Exactly. So, in... Why do they? Why do you think they understood that more as we did not? I think this is not. the Zen philosophy and the understanding. I, I think see. it comes from the basic philosophy. They took MBO, 
suddenly they created a policy department which was 10 times more powerful than MBO because they didn't have the last mile connectivity. There's so many loose ends. Right. All of it was there, but there are too many loose ends. So somebody had to tie up the loose ends. So suddenly by putting down an X matrix, everybody knew exactly why they were doing what to achieve what for the company. By this method, everybody was involved, everybody was aligned, and everybody had simple tools to use. Not only the industrial engineering department, right. not only the quality department, everybody had the tools. And so, you said not just tools, but you said simple tools. Simple tools. That and everybody can and can you delineate real quickly what those simple tools were? The seven QC tools, uh, the well, Pareto diagram, the, the checklist, the, checklist, the root cause analysis, the fishbone diagram. Right. The advanced tools for managers, but again, they are not for the geeks. They were simplified. You didn't need that a computer. Very interesting. Not for the geeks. It was for everybody. And you said they were simplified and they didn't need to be run on a computer. No. Toyota ran a complete car project on walls with yeah. a thread which moved one point a day and anything left behind on that side. Why did, why did they, they somehow knew intrinsically that, that this would be better for everyone to have this information in a simple format than for the geeks to have it in an intellectual format? What, where did that understanding come from, from the Japanese? Why do you think they, how did they? You can answer that, I can. Why did they put that together? I think that's fascinating. Well, what they did uniquely, uniquely, is to take the information that was stored in an expert and give it to everyone. They did it in TQM. Value analysis, as an example, is so powerful. But why? Why did they? Because they were smart enough. How would the, how would the leapfrog the American? We're so far behind. General Motors you know, had the world, and arrogance. General Motors sold cars from Japan. And Toyota produced 40,000 cars. <laughs> Toyota produced 40,000 cars, and General Motors produced millions. Right, and General was so arrogant, they wouldn't even move the steering wheel to the, to the right. So they had to have a collective effort. Everyone had to be pulling the How oars in order for this to happen. The Americans. This is what we're trying to do. And okay. we did it differently. We have to be like an army. Everybody has to be involved, except to just just the managers, and so they looked, they looked at industrial engineering as an example. We have industrial engineering. They took the information, gave it to every employee to understand those tools. And if I can come in here, it's, it goes back, if you read American history, I read three years of American history in high school. Mm -hmm. I know American history, I bet I can write a better essay than you. Maybe, although on, I'm a, I'm a big Boston, time history person, but the, I wouldn't put no. anything past you. No, Boston Tea Party, that's yeah. right. It's, is slavery a social issue or is it an economic issue? Exactly. So not a social issue. It was converted to a social issue to prop, to continue it, to sustain it, and to make sure the divide was kept. But actually, it was an economic issue. Sure. Had free labor. So the South never industrialized. So during the war, the North had complete production and engineering facilities. South had only cotton and slave labor. We, and, and in addition to that, the, the North industrialized, built the railroads, had the supply lines to support the war effort. It was all that industrialization that, that supported their ultimate effort and to win. And, be, and because they were, they were dependent on treating people as drones instead of treating people as human beings. So what happened is that information is power, knowledge is power, and in individualistic society, he didn't want to share it. So he lost power. So the quality guy kept the tools himself. If he was fired, he took it away with him to his next company. Mm -hmm. So anybody, somebody left, 
whole bit of knowledge yes, left. Right. So the individualism, everything, every fruit of success has a seed of destruction built into it. This is reality through nature. Every fruit of success yes. has the seed of destruction inside. And the reason for that is what made you successful also makes you fail. So it's not a criticism of, of the American way of a Japanese guy. I really don't think it is. America has its own strength and you have to build on your strengths. Right. And Japan had its strength and they had to build on its own strengths. So America is individualistic. That's what makes Facebook. That's what makes Google. That's what makes Amazon. That's what makes Apple. And that's why America is still so powerful in technology and leadership in so many areas. But the weakness when it comes to manufacturing, manufacturing is an interdependent microcosm of society. There, if you allow individualism, you're never going to be successful. So manufacturing, America took a big hit because they did, they kept that individualism and everybody with individual targets and goals, not necessarily aligned to the corporation's goals and the customer's goals. So that's why they succeeded. Now why they did it, I think there is, uh, people say that culture doesn't matter. My own view, and Professor Suda has reinforced it greatly, he would say, I don't want to know Japanese TQ and Minasan. What is TBS TQ? Please explain to me. Why is it TBS? When we started rewarding QC circles and uh, suggestion schemes, the first Japanese who came said, oh no, this is completely wrong. I said, no, this is right for TBS. I said, why? We are neither West nor East, we are India. We don't think like the Japanese, nor do we think like the Americans. We are a subcontinent. And in that subcontinent, there is a concept of dharma or justice, mm -hmm. fair play. If I produce something more for the company, right. I expect to get a little reward for it. Not a great reward, but a recognition and reward. In Japan, only recognition is enough. In India, it's not. They'll say, this company is taking me for a ride. We stand for trust. Somebody's put an extra effort to break a problem. Somebody's put an extra effort, for example, during this entire crisis and uh, floods in Chennai. When I go back, the first thing is we're going to rate everybody who's put in extraordinary effort, have a tea party for them, and give them a small gift, recognize, and everybody will clap. It's very important. It, therefore, what happens is we have to adapt TQM and say, no, we will have to. And one thing that Japanese proved <coughs> They ran plants in America which were as productive as their plants in Japan, as good in quality mm -hmm. as the plants in Japan with America. And I, therefore one thing I fully disagree with is that there is something Japanese about you. Oh, absolutely. The it, second thing is, I don't fully agree also, is that you can just adapt or adapt it to every culture without modification. You have to look at how India thinks, how Indians think, what will work in India. Absolutely. And uh, this is what uh, Professor Suda always calls practical theory. He said this theory and then a slight modification to make it work in that environment, he said that is practical theory. So if you ever quote from a textbook, you'll say that is theoretical. How is practical theory? So if you, Indians, how they think, how does TVS employees think within India? And so TVS employees must accept it. If they don't accept it, it will not work. So you have to figure out how right. to make it accepted if it has to be done. And also accept it with the value system of the company and the society in which you operate. So you have to modify 
which is only modifying the presentation but not the content. The content is the same but you adorn it differently. Uh, you put gilded corners and edges and things which are very Indian and Americans yeah. say, oh, that's kitsch, but that's yeah. okay. It works. Americans say that's what? Kitsch. What is K-I-T-Z-C-H is... Glitchy. Too embellished. For example, too embellished. For example, you take this room. Now, our sales rooms look like this. And Professor Suda came and said, this is a hospital. <laughs> sales is a war room. It should be full of banners and blurbs and hangings and every season it should change. It is now Diwali in India, so it's all Diwali theme. Now it's Shankaranti in India, Shankaranti theme. It's marriage season in India, so it's marriage theme. So pictures of weddings, things hanging. He said your sales office must change every three months for the season to reflect so everybody's energized. He said your factories and sales offices cannot look the same, but I'm very clinical because my grandfather was clinical. So I tend to have a very neutral clinical. Personally, I love your taste. <laughs> It is fantastic. So yeah, it is fantastic. Yeah, your Korean. paintings, the artwork, like the lamp, the, the furniture, the oh, carpeting, the, the doors, the handles. Them. Everything's beautiful. You, I love. I love your clinical ways. That's all I can say. <laughs> I think the same way. So the thing is, uh, when BMW came and we started doing this contract with BMW, the head of production from Berlin. Uh, walking the plant, he said, I want to take a leak. So he went to use the washroom or restroom. Yeah, that's my problem. No, no, and he came okay. back and he said, you know, you're a good factory. I said, why? I used the Very clean. toilet and worker's toilet was good enough for me to use. I know. And uh, I agree. he said, you know, I really didn't have to take a leak, but I wanted to go and see what your toilet looked like. <laughs> and he said, that's where quality starts is in your scrapyard yeah, and your... Yeah, yeah. Yes, scrapyard and have, toilets. Have you heard about our bathrooms at my, my company? We have the cleanest bathrooms in the world. He has Japanese toilets in We have bidet toilets in Strawberry Place. It's a factory and, I, and they're I, I spotless. But not at your factory. Your factory is amazing and I enjoyed it and loved it. It was like, wow. So I think broadly this is uh, described the history from 1911 to 2015. So I we went through the change. We implemented TQM, we got the Deming Prize. And uh, so it's possible to do lean in India, it's possible to lean in Mongolia, it's possible to do lean in America. Not only is it possible to lean in India, you knocked it out of the park. You knocked it out of the park. And that's how we came and we had three great teachers, Professor Kurahara, yeah. then Professor Vashio, and then Professor Tsuda. And Professor Vashio really, I asked Professor Vashio, why? And you discovered these all in Japan in the early 80s. The first Kurahara came out of a Japanese Indian government connected to India. Yeah. And he came to our factory and he said the only day free is Sunday. Sunday is the holiday. So my, we all sat together, my colleague and I said, what do we do? My colleague said, no sir, we work on Sunday. Professor comes on Sunday, we work on Sunday. So we changed the weekly holiday to Monday and worked on that Sunday, overtime actually, we wow. paid people, uh, double time to work that day, but Professor was coming. So at the end of the day, I told Professor, we're so honored you came here and I hope you come. He said, to this company, I will come back year after year after mm. year. You work on a Sunday for me. That shows your commitment. Mm -hmm. Canon production system, it was a gold mine that I found 
and I didn't sell that much in America at all. I sold millions of shingle books and auto books. That why why do you think it didn't sell well in America? We weren't ready. Look, I found just in time in 1980-81, and I just couldn't communicate. I had one time, all the plant managers of Boeing, every plant manager for Boeing aircraft was in the room. And I'm teaching, I'm so excited to teach them what I'm finding in Japan. Not one person opened to me. 30 years later, Boeing finds the, the, the total production system. You were so unique. I was so sorry because, see, I was a publisher. I wasn't that good at communicating when I first met him. But what made Vaino so unique? Is it the influence of his father and his grandfather and the voracious appetite to read and learn? What made you so unique? I'd like to know that because I think that well, is a very... He had Francino and Chino somehow brought me to him. They were my first client. We were on the first training here. And all of a sudden you started to read. You really started to read all of my books. <laughs> and he saw the brilliance and then he made the connections with the Japanese. You know, through that, and it's continued to evolve. But as Avashia first came to the company, he had a big laugh. I apply all the wrong tools to the wrong purpose, but you try to apply tools. Therefore, I'm very happy to come to your company because you're trying to do yourself. We read textbooks and try to put out charts, and they're all wrong. But okay, we were just self learning, so we were certainly not right. But we wanted to learn. Yes. There are two kids that put in the two rooms next to each other. Right. One room was full of beautiful toys in those days, going back to the pre-video game days. It had a toy airplane, a toy car, it had the swings, it had slides, it had a small locomotive on which you could sit and go bam, 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 and round and round and things like that. And the other kid was put in a room with a pile of horse dung. Horseshit. Oh, okay, and both the doors are closed. And the psychologist went back after two hours. The first room they opened was a toy room, thinking this kid must be having a He was sitting in a corner like this. He said, Why? He said, Oh, if I start the propeller, it'll cut my finger off. If I go on the bicycle, I might fall down. If I do down the slide, I might break my butt. And he had a reason why he didn't touch any of the toys. They went into the other room, and there was this kid spattered with horseshit from head to toe, all over the walls, all over the roof, and you're still digging through the pile of horseshit. He said, what are you doing? He said, it's wonderful. If there's so much horseshit here, there must be a pony. I want to find that pony. <laughs> you know, tell me, so you, you said, Basically, you were out there experimenting, and that's why he yeah, wanted to work with you. Yeah, so much horseshit, yeah, right, right. and he wanted to find the pony. Yeah, exactly. But tell the story you told last night at dinner, because it was one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard about the wolf and the sheep and the rock and the spark. Tell that. Well, the wolf and the sheep story, please understand how to build knowledge in your company. If you have to become a knowledge company. So this is the base of the discussion, how to build knowledge, knowledge. in your company. And he said, what is the theory of knowledge? The theory of knowledge is first man has an act, and then he has a response, and then he has a learning. So he said, typically, this one story, he said, uh, shepherd threw a rock at a wolf that was coming to get his uh, lambs, and the rock missed the wolf but hit another rock and a spark came. So suddenly the shepherd thought, oh, now if I hit rock with rock, I'll get a spark. 
Next time we threw a different rock. Spark didn't come. So now the first conclusion, only a particular rock hitting a particular rock produces a spark. And that's why you learned that only flint produces spark. Next time the wolf came, he threw the same rock that produces spark at the wolf and it didn't produce a spark. So suddenly realized a wet flint does not produce spark. And he said, this is how you build knowledge with experimentation. And he said, therefore your company has to experiment, learn, record, and pass on the knowledge through training and education. You were saying last night about the conference room too. You were, you were not predisposed to learning in the conference room per se. No, I didn't say that. I started with conference rooms with the traditional tables and huge printed reports. It didn't work. And I was wondering and looking and saying, how do I change it? So then we went on to uh, Japan and we saw everything in charts and the stand-up reviews, you don't do sit-down reviews. We do a lot more sit-down reviews still because that's India, but we should actually, all the reviews KNR does is in one control room where everybody walks around, looks at each chart and says, what's wrong with the chart? So we have our planning room where we only have stand-up meetings and not sit-down meetings. We have sit-down meetings only for discussions on right. solving a particular problem or taking a decision. but for Control and review of processes, we do not do a sit-down review. And, uh, and why, what's the difference between sit-down and stand-up in your mind? Uh, sit-down review, everybody is sitting on their butt and then uh, expounding full of hot air on what things could be. No urgency. Even, yeah, exactly. There's no urgency. When you stand up and do a review, you, you know, you've got to move on. You can't just stand there right. and talk forever. And I saw that in your a video of a plant that That's right. uh, Norman made me see where everything was boards pulled out and things taken out as well as boards pushed back and there are no chairs in that whole factory. Right. Even the conference room has no chairs. It's crazy. Our financial meetings, everything right. stand up. If you get a chance, you should come and see this company. You have to send them this book. It's a, it's a tiny, it's a tiny shadow of what you created. Send, no, no, send no. me your two books. Oh, know? I will. What Absolutely. I saw, I cannot believe. I today, if I had to start again, I'd probably do that. Now, mm. now next yeah, generation sure. has to. But it was amazing. Your your factory and the stand-up principle was just blew my mind. It took us forever to get there, but we finally got there. No, but we had all sit-down assembly when, from the British days when I started. Ah. The first thing we do was remove all the sit-down. So uh, all there's no sit-down assembly in our company because we're not an electronics company. Yeah, got it. Where you have to sit down at work, there's no other choice with right, all those right. magnifying glances right. and looking at it. So we started actually after TQM stand-up assembly. It was a very big change for us. And uh, we go away from process uh, units, milling unit, drilling unit, tapping unit, assembly unit, and everything with three months of WIP line. We had six months of inventory in 1979. Uh, and we came down to two weeks of inventory. And when you stop for two weeks, it's from raw material to finished goods. We have only two weeks. What I told you is the nutshell, the history of TVS over 100 years and my career over 35 years. Well, well thank you so much. You did such an eloquent job of telling us the story. and. It's such an impressive organization and I am so grateful I got to meet you and see what you guys are doing.
Thank you very much. Thank it's you very a, much. I am privileged to have you, Paul, and Norman. And Norman much. has been really, uh, he's such a boss. He's crazy good, isn't he? Norman is crazy good. You know, my, my dad over there. My dad passed away when he was 79 years old, about eight years ago. And Norman is my new father. And I love every second of being with him. It brings tears in my eyes when I think about that I get the, to be around him. One thing that I learned about people like Norman, my guru was Satya Sai Baba. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's not good to be great, but it's great to be good. Uh. <laughs> you know, can I just interject here? Last night at dinner, you know, you said that if you give something, you should have an expectation. You should expect something. Isn't that, isn't that what you said last night? No, I didn't say that. Huh. When we give something to people, we have no expectation for ourselves. Okay. But you should not be without having expectations for them. So when you give them something, you demand change for yes. improvement from them for themselves. Otherwise it's waste. Otherwise it's waste. Yes. I'm so glad you clarified that. That so is fantastic. So it is not giving something to me. I don't want You don't expect anything, but you expect something for them. I expect them. something for them. <laughs> no, the reason my factories look more like a park is my, my dad came here, it was very green when he bought this land. And he named it Harita. Harita means green. But it's not just green as a color. It means green as a sign of prosperity, of lush green growth, which produces agricultural prosperity. So uh, when I did my turnaround 92, the one thing I said is now I'm also going to turn around the way my plants look. And we dedicate one third of any aerial factory that we put up to greenery. It does two things. We're in a, a business which does produce pollution because the automotive right. industry does produce pollution when, it's, when the user burns fuel. So I created this pond with a lovely heronry with a few thousand nesting birds in the migrating season and greenery all around because people should say that we want to be a green company. We want to maintain the environment. So if you build wall to wall, which most people do from when they buy a plant, they say land is expensive, don't waste. Don't waste built up area. Keep your inventory low, keep your space productivity high and do things. But I think people should work in a green environment because it inspires you that there's a greater purpose that you serve of protecting and sustaining the environment. Not only is it green, I want to say it's manicured to perfection inside and out. It is the finest yeah. factory I have ever set foot in. And the transition, because I, I remember your factory when I first came over. What a transition. Huge. It, it is, well, it I've never seen anything like it. The lawns, the greenery on the outside, the Do attention you know we to have detail. Twenty-nine species of snakes in our factory. Uh, I would. Nothing would surprise me. <laughs> nothing would surprise yeah, we me. We have eighty species of birds. We have uh, wild cats, what we call the jungle cats, which are very lean and long, unlike the domesticated right. cat. We found it in night traps with camera traps, we found them walking with cubs. Uh, we have what's called the slender loris, the first primate, it's the earliest form of primate. Uh, uh, not as intelligent as the monkeys, very slow moving, 
uh, we have turtles, harpoons, we have, uh, it's really a sustainable environment, the small, because we have to have a test track uh, almost uh, three quarters of a mile long, and so around it we created this lovely, sustainable environment, it is not just green of the same species, not monoculture, wow. it's actually we got a forest guide to identify all the indigenous species that would grow there originally wow. and planted them. So it's actually flora is sustainable, the fauna is sustainable. It's, it's like a botanical and we, garden. And we do up to six inches of rain, not a drop of water will leave our plant. It will all come into our pond and be held there and reach out of the groundwater. So you were saying that regarding safety, you're adopting Scandinavian standards, not uh, Indian standards. When I say Scandinavian, let's say European standards. European it's standards. The European standards or Japanese standards are what we use. Uh, and because right now Indian standards are behind them. So we have a clear gap that we can do a gap analysis. We can do a root cause analysis and Pareto analysis and we can say how to. But once you match world standards, then how are we as a company going to be the company which is always that one step ahead and we are going to create That's the creating the standard. That is a far greater challenge. Climbing the mountain is easy because you know how much you have to go. But how do you create a peak that nobody else has created before? Let me get like this. that one, the block, the city block. Oh, the artwork in here is just absolutely fantastic. Wow. And so you want to show me another painting? I this is the spirit that I want the company. The spirit of the company. And your grandfather and father here. Okay. What does that represent? Look at the marks on his hands and arms. It looks like sacrifice. He is pulling the enemy flag down. Enormous personal sacrifice and pain. Wow. And why is that important for the company? Because we were down and out and we are coming back as a company. Ashok, having been a major in the army, understands now what that means. Isn't that powerful? And this one? This one is just amazing. I like it. It is amazing. So when you buy a factory, when you buy a piece of land, how do you, how do you view it? We buy three pieces of land really in one piece. One piece will be the first plant for, for the next 10 years. The second plant will come for the 10 years after that and one third will be green forever. To create that oasis? Yes, because it changes the mind of the people who work there. So you're not interested in building wall to wall and taking up every square foot. You no, want to create... because it does not look like, you talk about green, sustainable climate change, then if you build wall to wall, it's a concrete jungle. And therefore, what you're saying is that that's the way you should live. But what I would like to say is, and next time you come, I'd like you to take to your Mysore plant, where we've got greenery, which is, it's almost you feel you are in the wilds of India. If you go there in the evening into the jungle part of it, uh, you have uh, peacocks <coughs> dancing, you have ducks on the pond, you have storks walking around. You have thousands of ibises and things coming to roost at night in our safe haven. We have jungle fowl, which is the equivalent of mm -hmm. your prairie chickens. Uh, the original fowl came from India. I don't know whether you know. All the fowl in the world came from Asia. 
where wow. we have jungle fowl, which is domesticated and became now the the chicken. Chicken. What's interesting is what I really hear you saying is it's not all about profit. Not at all. Not, not, not it's not all about profit. You're not thinking, how do I make more money on everything? How do I create no. a powerful, sustainable, long-term organization? Uh, profitability is, is essential. a linear program. Okay. It's a linear program. Uh, only if you maximize profit then where does your customer, he's going to lose. Where's yeah. your society, they're going to lose. But whereas if you say profit is a linear program saying this is the society's needs, these are the customer's needs and these are my needs, then you come down to the linear program, the optimal area, which is sustainable, profitable or long-term. And that's where I disagree with Milton Friedman. Companies are only about their profit. Uh, I, I forget who said this, a British statesman. He says, my right to open my umbrella ends at your nose. Mm -hmm. If your umbrella is going to hit my You have to think of the impact you're going to have. The impact you're creating. And therefore, this represents an oasis of how long-term a country should be. It should be sustainable, it should be green. And we harvest all the water that falls on our land is taken to our ponds, which recharges our groundwater. So it's, it's, it's sustainable from that point of view yeah. as well. And we recycle 100% of our water. We do not, we are a zero discharge company. So we were talking about the fact that I love to ride motorcycles and you ride them, but you can't too much because you had an injury. And because I have a, like a whiplash. Right. I've, uh, I've got a pinched nerve on my... Uh, so you're not going to go motorcross right? right no, right, no, no. Either. I don't do any crossroad riding either on a bike or a, a four-wheel SUV. Uh, uh, all terrain vehicles, I can't do any of them anymore. Right, so in order for you to go to some of the villages because the roads are very bad, you have to do what? Uh, I take a helicopter and I didn't do that for a couple of years. I didn't go to the village because you felt bad. And a little presumptuous finally, to be landing in a poor village in a helicopter. Exactly. And the helicopter ride costs more than what you spend for that village in a year. Exactly. <laughs> so I was, uh, when I landed, they all came and I told them, they said, look, you're abandoning us. I said, no, but I feel embarrassed about landing in an expensive helicopter to do village development. And the guy turned around and said, you come by rocket, but you come. Because if you don't come, you're causing us more harm than coming by helicopter. Nobody's going to misunderstand you. We've known you for 20 years. We know that you're not about your comfort and your uh, convenience, but now you need it. And otherwise you're not going to come. So come he said, but you come any way you can, but you better get here. Before it is furnished, because furnishing brings spirits with it. Right. Before it's furnished, you do a housewarming where you do chanting and bring good spirits in and keep and make it occupiable by a family. Mm -hmm. On the day the factory walls came up and there's no missionary inside, there's nothing, an empty building. That day, after we finished the morning prayers and the housewarming, that night my father died. And this is the first motorcycle factory? Yes. So he gave you the seed for the motorcycle factory. I was the project you, manager. But you had to grow the banyan tree. I had to grow the banyan tree. Now, you can say that which is more important, the person who gave the seed or the person who grew the banyan tree. Both. But I think if somebody gave you the seed and you didn't grow it, absolutely, nothing comes out. But if you didn't give the seed, you couldn't have grown it. 
that's equally true. So in the same way, I had the seed of an idea of SST, but the person who gave it form and shape and is the size is Ashok. Is Ashok. That's beautiful. So he's grown up this incredible organization that is helping millions of people. You had the vision for it, and what's beautiful about that is it just tells a story of collaboration and integration and people working together and being connected rather than the John Wayne syndrome as you describe it. And also it's important to know the role of the owner and the role of the CEO. In my view, that I am an executive chairman owner. I own the legal entity and I'm responsible for all stakeholders, including society, shareholders, the stock exchange, the customer, the, SEC, the, customer, the employees. But the owner of the business is the CEO. And therefore, he's empowered to run the business, but he cannot tamper with the values. He cannot tamper with, with the governance structure and the stakeholders. He can add to it, but he cannot detract from it. One more time, what did your professor, your teacher? He said you can always create a microcosm, which is infinitely better than the macrocosm and be a very high quality company. And this challenge you have met, your employees come from very poor environments. They've never seen electronics. They come in and suddenly they're running modern CNC machines, robotics, they're running a clean plant. The cleanliness is not part of their uh, culture. culture. And uh, so he said, this is how you start change. When many such companies grow up, then whole society will change. And today, if you go to any of my employees' homes, they're very clean. They look different than the culture yeah. that they were raised in. Raised in, or the culture of the neighbor. Because you have changed the paradigm of all that. Exactly. And so I want to, just for clarity's sake, I want you to repeat the concept that you are in, in a, essentially an impoverished country and yet you created operational excellence and a lot of people say it can't be done, but you did exactly that. Did I get that right? We did that early. Now a lot of people are doing it. We're not, but when we did it in 1989, we we're the only company who are creating a com complete difference. And, uh, complete and total. Not a little bit better, but juxtaposed to what's going on exactly. in the study. Normal inventory turn was four times. We were at 22. We are having 15% productivity improvement a year in the company. Everybody was in suggestions, QC circles, and we had at least three task forces running every year. A task force may be on service, a task force may be on designs, task force may be on quality, task force may be on productivity. But at any year, we had three breakthroughs. So we're not really talking about Kaizen. And there's a lovely graph uh, that I cannot replicate probably, but I'll try and replicate it, uh, is that you have uh, so this is senior management. This is workers. So workers' role in breakthroughs is zero. And their role in daily improvement is much more, actually. It's graphs like that. Is so much. I'm very poor at drawing, so please forgive. 
It's perfect so far. Uh, the top management spends very little time on daily management. They're only checking. They spend, let's say, so much time on continuous improvement and or they spend most of their time on breakthroughs, just for simplicity's sake. Right. And the middle management actually is in the middle. They spend so much on breakthrough, so much on continuous improvement, and so much on daily management. So the proportion changes. This is a very unique model that was given to us. And I think the, therefore top management visits shop floor just to make sure daily work goes on. They spend time with the teams who are doing continuous improvement of engineers and managers to motivate them, guide them. But they actually spend 70% of their time on breakthrough. On breakthroughs. So I should spend 70% on breakthroughs, 20% on continuous improvement, 10% on daily work. Now I've even changed. I spend 90% on breakthrough. Breakthroughs, 5% on 10, 7% on continuous improvement and 3% on and why do you think that is? Is that because the the shortage of time in your life, and so the breakthrough is much more critical? Because what, what, why did that change? Generational change. I believe uh, that the energy required and the drive required to do the next breakthrough of this company over the next twenty years has to be that person who can work twenty four seven. And I know that I have been CEO and owner for 35 years. And therefore, there is a certain flagging of energy and drive. I may have the ideas. I may have the mental energy, but the physical energy I don't have. I have oh, a bad back. Oh, I'm 83 years old. You are different, Mar. We will not talk about you. I know All I'm right. talking with you, President, and I knew you were going to interrupt <laughs> and say what you're going to say. But I, I'm not uh, Norman. I don't have the... If I go very You look high, very spry to me, Benu. You have to fly. You're a motorcycle rider. Mm -hmm. You're a pilot. Mm -hmm. You have to fly within your envelope. Absolutely. If you exceed your envelope, you'll crash. Absolutely. You come in for a dive and you're not able to pull out and you're doing skydiving, you're going to crash. So you have to pull out. If the other guy is and doing the envelopes, it at 10 feet, and the envelopes change I can only you. pull it out at 200 feet. I will start coming out of my dive at 200 feet, even though my other guy who's showing off is coming up at 10 feet. Because I will crash. I don't have the same physical control. I and balance coordination the other guy has. I have an inner ear problem. I have a balance problem. So I always drift when I land to the left of the runway. If I walk with my eyes closed, by the time I've taken 20 steps, I'd have been at least one foot away from my straight line. Mm -hmm. So I have to understand, that's your physical, what you have. So each one is unique. And so what I can do best is now empower younger people, just give them the environment and create the next breakthrough. Because there are lots of things that Norman has raised about what do you do about safety, what's your long-term vision, what about your empowerment of younger people, managers down below, and so on and so on. If, but that has to happen, then my energy is now conserved only to do the HR breakthrough, the cultural breakthrough of the company. And not about daily work, how it happens, what could I understand. Do. So that's how I'm spending my time. And second, I spend time in villages. I do a lot of temple restoration as one of my commitments to my society. Yeah. And third, I need more time for my own progress mentally and spiritually. So when I had to look at the balance, my balance shifted 
three years ago. And now I'm accelerating that. And I think now I've reached where I want to reach. So I want to spend 80%, not 70, but 80% on breakthroughs and breakthrough particularly in the culture, empowerment, young people coming to the fore. Now you think Japanese respect age, but when KNR became CEO, he was 43. So... 43? Yeah, so the Japanese professor was telling me... How old is KNR now? He's now 53, 52. So when he said, uh, I said, Professor, but he's a little young, he needs time. Well, son, my friend, head of Procter & Gamble, 43. So why KNR cannot be CEO at 43? Well, hopefully you enjoyed what you just watched. I, I couldn't believe it. As I listened to the tape again and went through and edited a little bit of it, I said, wow, what an opportunity. What wisdom that we all just had an opportunity to learn. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode of The American Innovator and pass this on to as many people as you can so we can continue to learn and improve. Thanks a lot for listening.